0: We're in Mark chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 7. Tonight, we're going to study from verse 1 to verse 23, Mark chapter 7. I'm going to go ahead and actually read uh, verse 1 and uh, all the way through to verse 5. So the Bible says this, and the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, Now, when they saw some of his his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, doesn't seem to be a big deal, right? They found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, that's a big deal, uh, just to note that. They do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they've received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Let me just read uh, verse 5 2. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So, you know, we read these verses, and I know, like, from our context, it may not make a lot of sense because, because you know, we, we try to wash our hands before we eat. And then if you're a parent, you are definitely instructing your kids to wash their hands before they eat. I mean, that just seems like a a good practice. But remember, at this point of time in Israel, uh, there were particular traditions that were man-made that had become so influential, they were considered to be equal to or even greater than the law. Uh, And so, you know, the religious leaders had held all these traditions that were that significant to them. Um, I think sometimes, you know, when we think of the word tradition, uh, we may frame it in a negative context, uh, but there are traditions that are, that are good traditions, right? And, and we may use different words to describe those good traditions, and, and I'll use the words godly disciplines. Like, there are good godly disciplines that we have that we should be, uh, you know, participating in regularly. They're a consistent part of our communion with God uh, they're, they're, however, they're biblical, right? I mean, we're not making it up as we go along. They are disciplines that are found within the Word of God. But we participate in them consistently. Um, on the other hand, there are man-made traditions that are extra-biblical. They're not biblical. This for sure was the issue in the time of Jesus. And we'll talk about what some of those current man-made traditions might be, because we want to see this in the light of our current context. Uh, But if you were a Jew at the time, uh, of course you have the Torah, which uh, is the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. That's the law. It's called the law. Uh, Throughout those five books, there are various laws. They're like sprinkled around, Uh, except in Leviticus, where Leviticus you find just basically from front to back, it is all the law. Uh, But these were not man-made, these were the commands of God. They felt uh, during the time of Christ, but then also before, that it was important to add to the law so that people were able to understand how they should carry the law out. And so over the course of many years, there were these oral traditions that were man-made. They were instructions that taught people how to carry out the command that was in the Word of God. Now, all of this was uh, codified, so we're talking about hundreds of years of traditions that were handed down, that were, um, you know, taught by the elders and taught by the rabbis. It was ultimately codified in a book called the Mishnah around 200 years after Uh, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And just in case you're curious about those types of uh, Jewish documents, you have the Mishnah and the Gemara, uh, which when you put them together, make up the Talmud. But this is all the oral tradition that was was handed down. Uh, They considered during the time of Christ that those oral traditions were a fence around the law. So So to preserve the law, this was the perspective that they had, to preserve the law, there were all of these traditions that were placed around the law. And in kind of framing it like that, in the mind of the religious leader, they had made, therefore, these oral traditions, like I said, either equal to the commands of God or sometimes even greater than. For instance, there was a rabbi Uh, during you know the time of Jesus somewhere around there who said this he said he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to their tradition has no share in the world to come so in other words if you teach the scriptures in a way that conflict with the oral tradition that's been handed down you're going to hell not very nice Uh, In the Mishnah, you will read, if you ever want to read the Mishnah, you'll find this statement, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. So there's a statement in the Mishnah that says that it's worse to be in conflict with something that a rabbi or an elder has taught than it is to actually be in conflict with the scripture itself. That would be kind of like you listening to me tonight and saying, hey, you better uh, listen to what Pastor Derek said, because what Pastor Derek says is even greater than the word of God. Like, that's a problem, isn't it? None of of you are like, oh, I'm out of here, right? None of you would ever want to do that, and none of you would do that, because we obviously place the scriptures... Uh, as a, a in a place of preeminence or prominent, prominence. The, the authority that we have comes from the word of God. So this is kind of the picture. These Pharisees and scribes, uh, they were in Jerusalem. They've journeyed over to kind of observe the ministry of Jesus. And I just want to say, uh, remember, this was not like they had questions that they wanted to uh find answers to they really wanted to not just criticize him but they wanted to condemn him and and i know you know this but the pharisees were a very fastidious jewish sect so you had the pharisees you had uh the sadducees and then you had the essenes three different groups within judaism uh they all had you know unique aspects to the things that they believed and the things that they taught The Pharisees emphasized the traditions of the elders, and they kept them meticulously. The scribes, on the other hand, were the doctors of the law. Uh, So these were the individuals that they, they not only transcribed the scriptures, but they were the one. they were professionals, they were professionally trained. If anyone had a question about really the nuts and bolts of the word of God, they would always go to a scribe. And the scribe, as the doctor of the law, would tell them what the scriptures meant. So it may have looked like this. You had the Pharisees going down to find fault with Jesus, and then you had the scribes endorsing what they said as if it was from God himself. Um, I I do just want to mention tonight, right, as we think about the, the scribes and the Pharisees and their attitude towards Jesus, you know, they weren't coming to to uh, hear what he had to say. They were not coming to affirm those things that he did. They came not just to criticize, but to condemn. I would just say this tonight, don't be a Pharisee, right? Don't be a Pharisee. Sometimes it comes natural to us uh, to see others through the lens of failure. Sometimes as religious people, you know, we're always looking for failure in other people, and we should never be we should never be looking at people like that because, you know, God doesn't look at people like that. I think it's easy for us to, to nitpick others. You know, somebody said this a long time ago to me, and I think it's really true. We judge ourselves but by, by our intentions, and we judge other people by their actions, right? I mean, we're quick to point out what other people do is wrong. We ignore our own wrong stuff because, you know, we live under the banner of, well, I didn't mean it, right? I didn't mean it. We use that all the time right we say something we shouldn't say to our husband or our wife or we re- react in a way that we shouldn't with our kids uh, or you know we're behaving in a way that's ungodly and our excuse is well i didn't mean it and it's like well if you don't mean it then don't do it right because saying that over and over again over the course of time just you know i mean pretty soon people will stop believing what you have to say so there was this tradition of the washing of hands And it kind of went something like this. It was a very, uh, very specific tradition. If you uh, read the Mishnah, I haven't, you know, read this aspect of the Mishnah, but uh, I've studied this, and apparently there are 60 pages dedicated to how you should wash your hands before you eat. This, uh, yeah, can you imagine that, right? I, you know... uh, I, I can't, I, I just can't even fathom. I mean, maybe we do after COVID, right? There's, there's so much about, about washing your hands that we've probably never considered before. Uh, but there was this particular way that they did it. Uh, and it was something like this. They would place their hands together and they would make sure their elbows were not connected. And then a fistful of water, there's debate on this, what this particular uh, word means in Greek, but a fistful of water or an eggshell and a half very specific amount of water, would then be poured over your fingers and your hands. And the the water would take all of those uh, pieces of of dirt that were defiled. So it wasn't just an issue of like getting the dirt off. There was a ceremonial cleansing that was happening here because the dirt itself may have been defiled. You say, well, how could the dirt have been defiled? You might have been walking down the street and this dirt particle was in the air and it had been on a Gentile or it had been on a Samaritan. And their perspective of the Gentile or the Samaritan was that they were unclean before God because they weren't Jewish. Or maybe there had been a, a leper that was walking down, not a leopard, but a leper <laughs> that was walking down the sidewalk. Or, or maybe a woman was walking down the sidewalk in uh, you know, her monthly cycle. And so you had this ceremonial Uh, a ceremonially unclean piece of dirt that floated from that person and landed on you. And the idea was that in your eating or in your touching of your mouth or the sucking of your thumb, I mean, you know what I'm saying, that's just an exaggeration, But, but that defiled piece of dirt would get in you and then you would be defiled before God. You would be defiled before God. And so they were like the people who really took this seriously if it was like a five course meal, they would wash before the first course, they would wash between the, fir- the, the first and second course, then they would wash between the second and third course, so by the time you've finished your meal, you've washed like five or six times, just in case you, know, you had picked up a defiled piece of dirt. And this was, you know, this was clearly a big deal With the disciples of Christ, because I just wanted to want you to think about this. Uh, They were handling things that were considered unclean all the time. And the list of what was unclean, there is a list in Leviticus, but that list was added to by the tradition of the elders. But I just want you to think about it. If you're one of these religious people, you're like, wait a minute, these guys are hanging with lepers, they're hanging with tax collectors, uh, they're touching Gentiles. There was a a woman in this gospel account, chapter 5, verse 25, who was on this monthly cycle but it had been for years on end that actually touched Jesus and so in their mind they're thinking he's unclean as well and then Jesus is raising somebody from the dead. Just think about all of the violation of the traditions that these individuals saw the disciples commit. And so they were coming down from Jerusalem to find fault and to expose him for rejecting the tradition of the elders, which would have been paramount to denying the scripture itself. Um, not, just, not to mention their attitude towards people, right? I mean, we can talk about that some other time, but just think about viewing people from the perspective that, you know, they're undefiled and I am not. So Jesus underscores their error. And, uh, you know, you can follow this, a course, here, right? It starts with... The, um, them issuing their condemnation and then Jesus' response in underscoring their error. The Bible says in verse 6, he answered and said to them, so like, they're like, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, your disciples, Jesus, they don't walk according to the tradition of the elders. They haven't washed their hands in the prescribed way. His answer, he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, say that word with me tonight, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things. Let me just reread his quote from the book of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The title tonight, by the way, is All Lips and No Heart because that's for sure what they were. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain, think about the weight of that, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Check this out now. For laying aside the commandment of God, right? It's like you've got one hand, and in in one hand you had the commandment of God, you had the Holy Scriptures, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold instead the traditions of men. And then he goes on to explain what that was. And so, you know, Jesus doesn't mess around. He gets right to the point and he says, listen, you, you, you are people who are play-acting. He calls them hypocrites. The word literally means to play-act or to pretend to be something that you're not Uh, And in the context here, clearly what he's saying is, you are people who pretend to love God, but the reality is, you don't. And he says, you're the fulfillment of what Isaiah, the prophet, said, a self-deceived ritualist would ultimately look like. Now, in Isaiah's time, Isaiah was dealing with people that were going through uh, religious rituals that had been prescribed by God, but they were doing it without their hearts, Right, and so I, Isaiah, during his era, was addressing this issue. He's like, hey, you guys, you, you observe you observed the feasts, and you observe the Sabbath when it's convenient for you, and you're going to temple, and you're making your offering, but the problem that God, God has with it is as you're going through all of those things repetitiously, you're doing without, without a heart for God. You have no love in your heart for God. And he said, by the way, I just want to let you know that all of this counts as nothing before God. This was the word of God to the Israelites at the time. And now, during the time of the Pharisees and scribes, this whole idea of ritualism as the thing that pleases God without your heart, had it was like on steroids, right? It was to the extreme. And so Jesus says, you guys are hypocrites. And you don't even realize the failure that you're walking in as you have come to rely on man-made traditions. And based on what Isaiah says here, there are three things to point out. Number one is this, you are all lips and no heart. You're all lips and no heart. You might be, you might be saying that you're following God. You might be praying out loud in front of the multitudes to see. You might be offering your gift in the temple. And while you're doing it, you're blaring the trumpet so everyone can see what you're doing. You might be fasting, and 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 yet you're on the street corner, you know, in all of your somber, uh, all the somber weight of the difficulty physically and the physical adversity that you're going through because you're fasting, and all of that seems to the people as something magnificent and beautiful before God. But the truth is, this while your lips are saying it, your heart is not in it. Now the truth is that. You know, we can look at this and say, well, you know, that was then and, and this is now and that was, all about, that was all about following these traditions that were man-made. But the truth is this, if, if our heart is not in what we do and what we say with regard to how we love God, then we're in just as bad of a place as these religious leaders were, right? I mean, to roll in tonight... And, you know, to be able to, and, and, and listen, we thank God for all the songs that we sing, but, you know, sometimes that can become a ritual to us, too. We love the melody. We know the words. And so, you know, we can be present, and we can be standing, and our hands can be raised, and we can be singing and still thinking about something else than God. This is why I appreciate when our worship team off-roads, you know, they off-road. They depart from the normal Verse or chorus that we become so accustomed to singing because you know it can just become like a a ritual to us. We can just do it by rote. It's almost, you know, we're so accustomed to it. We're on autopilot when we worship God. And then all of a sudden the worship team just like, you know, moves in another direction. And some of us, some of us are like, hey, wait a minute, that's not how it goes. (laughs) That's not how it goes. You can't do that. You know, you can't depart from the nor- normal verse or chorus. Like, our song is supposed to be three minutes and 52 seconds. It has to fit within this box, right? And then you finish this song like this, and then we move on to the next song, and then we do a third song, and, and then Derek or whoever's teaching comes up and maybe does an announcement, and there's 40 minutes of teaching, and bop, 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 we've got, we've got it all carved up. We've got it carved up. And, and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying the carving is bad. I'm not saying that the order is bad. I'm saying that our hearts are so messed up that sometimes we can get caught into this cycle of doing things and we, we, we don't even realize that, man, our, our hearts departed a long time ago. Our hearts departed a long time ago. That's why I do think it's important from time to time to turn our order of service upside down. You know, I was thinking about this uh, when I was doing a devotion uh, the other day, and back in Illinois we had we had a farm, okay, really, it was probably a huge garden, but I was just a little guy, and so for me, it was a farm. We had corn and we had uh, watermelon and zucchini and strawberries. we had all this stuff, and you know the the ground would just become it would it would just naturally become hardened, right? Because of the weather, because of walking on it. And so before you plant the seed, you have to get the tiller out. Anybody run a tiller before? You guys are Vegas people, man, just for sure, because tillers don't work in Vegas. But you know, you get the tiller out, you rent it, and what does it do? It it turns the soil over, right? It turns the soil over so that hard soil is not on the top, but the It cultivates the soil so the soil is ready to receive the seed. And I think, you know, sometimes even something as simple as turning over our order of service gives us an opportunity to have hearts that are refreshed before God because the last thing that we want to do is be heartless in our worship of Him. Because he goes on to say, the second thing here, in vain they worship me in vain they worship me and if this doesn't scare the hell out of you i don't know what will and and i mean that in the sense of like real real hell so don't i didn't just cuss all right i'm talking about i'm talking about having an awareness of the holiness of god and 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 what god deserves And to live our whole life, can you imagine living your whole life and going through all these religious rituals and then standing before God someday and saying, hey, you know what, your heart wasn't in it. And so all of that meant nothing. It meant nothing. You replaced faith in my son for man-made traditions. And so all of those hours of investment, you know, going to church and fulfilling what were considered to be spiritual disciplines, all of that meant nothing because you were not connected to me in the way that I prescribed through my son. God help us to not be investing in man-made tradition at the expense of real heartfelt worship before the Lord. And the third thing is this, you know, I know this got you, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He said, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And so the third thing that they didn't realize uh, that they were at fault in because they were so focused on these man-made traditions was that they had replaced God's word with the tradition. In fact, they had rejected God's word, laying aside the commandment of God. And this is what I was talking about. This is the perspective, right? You've got, as a leader, you've got, you've got one hand that's open And maybe at one point in time, they had the scriptures, the holy scriptures in their hand as the thing that they held as the authority and that they conveyed to the people of God. And then somewhere along the way, they set down God's word and they took up man-made tradition and they held it as if it was the holy scriptures. He goes on in verse 9 to identify their hypocrisy. The Bible says, he said to them all too well You reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many, like it doesn't stop there. Jesus, is like, I'll give you one example, but by the way, and many such things you do. So, so he underscores their error, right? Let, let me tell you guys, the fact is, you are a fulfillment of prophecy, and you're not going to like it. This is what Isaiah said about you. At the root of it, there is an error that you have. And then he identifies a specific example for them. It's not like he just leaves them hanging. He brings up this issue, and, and it's, you got to catch this because, because he shows how they were, in fact, in conflict With Moses, right? Moses they respect. Moses they revere. The law came through Moses. And so when you see those phrases for Moses said, and then in verse 11, but you say, Jesus is saying to them, you as supposed spiritual leaders have rejected the law of God. You've rejected the prophet that you say that you revere and you respect. In fact, if you're reading this in the original language, those words, but you say, are in the imperative so it's like he's, he's going along and he's talking. He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, right? So, so the reality is this. You've not only rejected the command of God, you've rejected the, the prophet that you say you respect so much. And the prophet in, in the word's going to come to me in just a second. Oh, my gosh. Exodus. I know it's a hard one, isn't it? Right? I mean, It happens. The the prophet Moses said in Exodus, commandment number five, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother with your words, with your resources, and with your time. But you all have created this tradition, and you've placed such an emphasis on it that this tradition that you've created is in conflict with Moses, and this was the example that he gave. Right, If you were living during the time of Christ, uh, and you had a possession, maybe a financial possession, or you had a home or something like that, and it was, it was really the right thing to do to either give it to somebody, or it was going to be part of your legacy that would ultimately go to somebody in the family, um, but you didn't want to do that, you didn't want to give it to that person, you could say, hey, this house, or this money, um, or this camel, or this donkey, it's korban. You know, I would love to be able to help you. I would love to be able to be merciful and compassionate and meet your need, but unfortunately I can't because I've really dedicated these resources to God. And so it was a way of kind of excusing yourself from doing the right thing in a spiritual, like with a, with a, with a spiritual terminology. And Jesus says, what you've done is you've, you've really neglected your responsibility to honor your father and mother. Maybe this was a, a possession that would have helped them. Uh, you could have compassionately given it to them, but you've used God as an excuse, and you're concealing your uh, unlovingness and your greediness, and yet you've done it in a way where you can still look spiritual. And, and Jesus says, in that, you have violated the fifth commandment. Now, now what you would do is if, if you wanted to really dedicate something as a gift to God because you wanted to escape you know, giving it to somebody as an act of compassion or mercy, you would go to the priest and the priest would ratify that and the priest would write it down and then, you know, over the course of time, maybe that person is gone, maybe that person has died, and so there's no responsibility to help them any longer. You can go back to the priest and you can say, hey, can you nullify the Korban thing because I want to use this for something else? And the priest would say, if you are a guy, yeah, 40 shekels, give me 40 shekels. Um, and if you are a woman, he would say, oh, yeah, we can do that. That's 30 shekels, cost less for women. And, and so, so it was a moneymaker, right? I mean, they made these traditions that they enforced And they gave you a way out, but you couldn't get out unless you paid the priest. And so there was this big business that had been created off of this uh, tradition. And all of it was just uh, to conceal the greediness of their heart. You know, I think, well, what are the examples today? You know, are there really examples like this in church culture where we have created traditions that really are not necessarily biblical in nature or we've taken a commandment of God and and then we've just added to it. So you can't even really recognize the commandment anymore. Um, And I just thought of two things. Number one, I thought about the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, the word sacrament from a Roman Catholic uh, theological standpoint means a means of grace. And so, from their perspective, if you engage in these seven means of grace, and and one, of course, is the priesthood, so that doesn't apply to everybody, Um, so that's kind of like, uh, that's just added grace, but if you participate in these, these are ways, and the Eucharist is one of them, these are ways that you attain God's grace through your actions, and obviously you know what that can produce. You can produce people that are going through these particular motions and they can say, hey, well, you know what, um, I'm, I've taken the Eucharist, I was baptized as an infant, um, I had a, uh, I'll have a priest come and pray for me before I die, those are uh, three of the seven, and as long as I'm doing those and I'm okay with God, right, you know, I'll come to church from time to time and you can have people, you've created a system that really has placed man-made tradition in the place of the gospel. Um, And not to just pick on Roman Catholics, but you know, it happens in Protestantism too. And I think the way it happens with the Protestant church is we take spiritual disciplines, like I said, and we create rituals out of them. You know, there are so many people, especially in the Bible Belt, but also in New England, who they'll say something like this, you know, my, my great grandma went to this church, and my grandma went to this church, and my mom and dad went to this church, and i go to this church we have a legacy in this church and you know i'm i i'm a am a deacon and i've served in this church um, and i'm here consistently and i faithfully give and all of that culture right all of that culture and i'm not saying that that a legacy in one particular local church is bad i think it's good You know, I'm not saying that serving as a deacon is bad or serving as an elder is bad. I think that that's good. But when you start relying on those activities as a means of grace before God, you have supplanted the gospel with something that's man-made, that will never earn you favor in the eyes of God, right? Like you, I know you don't come on Thursday night thinking, well, Thursday night, people are more spiritual than Sunday people, right? I mean, I come Sunday and Thursday. I come Sunday and Thursday. And, you know, I'm, I'm all about digging deeper into the Word of God. And at the end of the day, that's got to count for something, right? I talked about this on Sunday. And I think, what is that, what is that statement? It's got to count for something. What does that mean anyway? Like somehow we're building our own case for our own righteousness before the eyes of God? I mean, you know that all of that means nothing apart from trust and faith in Jesus Christ. All I'm saying to you tonight is that we are as susceptible as the Pharisees and the scribes. We are as susceptible as they were of taking good things and reshaping them into rituals through which we think because of our own self-righteousness, God somehow is going to be pleased with us. You know, you, you follow the argument here and what Jesus says about the word of God, and, and you can study this later for yourself, but in Mark 7, 7, he says that they taught their doctrines as God's word. In Mark 7, 8, he says they laid aside God's word. In Mark 7, 9, uh, he said they rejected God's word. And in Mark 7, 13, he said they, got, they robbed God's word of its power. They robbed God's word of its power. And just with that last piece, I would say, please don't forget that when we open the scriptures, it is another opportunity for God to pour heaven into our hearts. When we open the the Bible, it is another opportunity, it is another funnel through which God pours heaven into our lives. This is not a ritual that we go through. We're not just reading a history book. This is not a data dump so that our minds somehow have more information about God. This is a holy opportunity for us to have communion with our Heavenly Father, through which he pours his living word into our lives. And and how do we know? Listen, how do we know whether that really is how we're connecting with the Father? Because you know, you can go to church for 30 years and sit in the same service every night, And not be really getting what God wants. And so so we would all fear that, right? We would all fear that. How do we know? How do we know? I've been yelling a lot here tonight. Let me pause. How do we know? The Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit what? The the what? The fruit? Yeah, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit, let's just put it all together, right? The Holy Spirit is convicting us. We respond to the conviction, and he transforms and changes our lives. That, that's what happens, right? I mean, we should be able to walk out of the service and say, okay, God, you know what? Uh, it's been kind of like this, right? I mean, it, it shouldn't be like this, and it shouldn't be like this, and it's never just going to be like this. And if you're one of those Christians who are like, oh, it is always. Straight to the mountain, Pastor. I'm always moving forward. I'm never moving backward. I say, you are a liar. You are a liar. Don't even, don't even play that game with me. And you know, those people that do that normally are concealing the most sin. And all that's just a front because we all struggle. You know, we all struggle. We take four steps forward and then we take a step back, right? And, and I'm just saying, like, it might be doubt. It might be fear. It, it might be Whatever gluttony, it might you fill the blank in, right. It might be hard heartedness, it might be hard heartedness. I mean, there are times in my relationship with God, and you know, we'll get to this in just a minute, where it's like, God, this has got a problem, this has a problem. This should be way more tender to you than it is right now. Like I'm in the book and I'm in prayer, but but something's not right here, and I can't fix this. I need more joy right? I need, I need a greater faith. I need to be more spiritually locked in, and I can't generate that myself because I can't change my heart. What I can do is confess it to the Father and ask for his help. And so sometimes, right, sometimes it, it's, it's like this, but we should be able to look back on our lives and say, we've been growing. We've been growing. We, we should be able to say, God has been working today in my life. If I said this if I asked you this quest- question, hey, what's God been doing in your life lately? Uh, a lot. A lot. That's good. Yeah? Like, t- did you say too much? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know what that feels like. <laughs> right, what would you guys say? Too much. A lot. Tons. Like, give me, give me a, a concrete example. Growing in, my faith. Growing in your faith. Biding in Him, Undeserved mercy. what? Undeserved mercy. Undeserved mercy. Providing. providing. Okay, so this is kind of a concrete example. All those things were good, but they were general, right? I mean, but I, I'm looking for like a good concrete. Hey, God's this recently, God has been supernaturally providing for me. Give me, give me some concrete things that you would say God has been doing in your life recently. Raise your hand because you know it's hard. Teaching me to let him fight the mental battle. That's awesome, man. God gave her $50 out of nowhere. That's awesome. Right behind you, you had your hand raised first. Healing. Thank God. Robert. Yeah. Teaching Teaching him to trust in spite of circumstances. Wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach. Frizzell. Uh, allowing you to pray with inmates. Oh, that's good. Uh, again, that's awesome. Yeah, right, that's good. Right behind you. Providing opportunities to talk to people in the neighborhood. Joe softening my heart. That's good, softening my heart. So look, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is these are concrete, present, right now, things that God is doing. If I ask that question, you're like, well, you know what? I mean, he did something in my life in 1980, but that, that's a problem, okay? That's a problem. And, and I, I know 1980 is a long time ago, and most of you weren't even alive then. but But if it's But if you can't find a concrete thing in the last five months or a year or two years, that should compel you to lean into God and ask Him why. To lean into God and ask Him why. Because if we're communing with God, there's going to be answers to prayer in our life. If we're really communing with God, then we're going to see Him hearing in heaven and answering here on earth. So... Let's see, where was I? I don't even know. Verse 14, the Bible says, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. He totally reverses the course on their understanding of ceremonial cleanness. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's like, hey, that probably should make sense. You guys should get it. When he'd entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. They're like, Rabbi, we just don't get this. He said, do you not perceive? Uh, He said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach? And it's eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. What comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, and just to be like gender equality here, and women, <laughs> proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. So he gets a moment with his disciples as he always does. They don't totally understand what the meaning of what he says was. It was in conflict with their context. It was hard for them to get their brains around it. And so, you know, fundamentally, he said this to the multitude. Now he's saying it to them. It's not, go, it's not what goes in that defiles. It's not that, it's not what goes in from the outside that defiles a person. Moral uncleanness doesn't come from the food that you eat. We're all, by the way, going to have sushi after the service. No, I'm just kidding, but that would be nice. And, and, and listen, he just he expresses why. Like food goes in, it lands in the stomach, not in the heart, and then it's eliminated. It's purified. The good stuff is taken out. The waste is left over, right? So, so it's not, it is not. Eating things, eating things that might have this unclean particle that's been attached to this piece of dirt that's not now gone into your mouth. I mean, the Pharisees were so fastidious about this that if a gnat flew into their mouth, they would gag themselves so that the gnat came out. Because eating that insect in their mind would have meant that they were ceremonially unclean. But Jesus nullifies the dietary restrictions. I mean, this is a big thing. It's not really uh, dialed in or laid out here in detail. He nullifies all of the dietary restrictions. And he just gives such a solid, simple point. The defilement does not come from the outside. Uh, sometimes I run into Christians and they, they, they're so, they, they talk like this, well, you know what, pastor, I, I try not to hang around non-Christians because I don't want to get too close. You know, they're all, they're full of sin and they're kind of nasty and, and, you know, I don't want to get too close because, you know, they're, they're going to impact my, my righteousness and, you know, normally that conversation then goes to, it would be so awesome, wouldn't it, if we could just have our own island as Christians and we could all be together? And I'm like, dude, we don't even get along in the church. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you talking about, right? What are you talking about? I don't want that till heaven because that'll be a total disaster. That's what it will be. But that attitude, that mindset, or that somehow, look, we're all out in the secular world, and, and the mindset that somehow being out in the secular world is going to impact somehow our righteousness is, of course, foolishness because our righteousness doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from God. And, and viewing people like that would put us in a disposition, it would create a framework that God doesn't even have for himself and he doesn't want us to have either. You know, Paul was talking about, to, to Corinth, he was talking about identifying Uh, sin issues and addressing them. And they got all confused because they thought that he was saying, well, that means that you can't hang out with non-Christians because there's all this sin. And he had to clean that up because they got confused. And he said, hey, when I said that to you, I didn't say to you, don't hang out with non-Christians because if that happens, how will they ever get saved? How will they get saved? What I was saying is judgment begins in the house of the Lord. You guys need to hold each other accountable. The second thing that I see that he says here is this, the heart is the place of the uncleanness in us. It's the heart. It's not, it's not the secular world around us. Uh, it is not the Christian, or excuse me, it is not the non-Christian. It is our own heart. The place of uncleanness, the place that is immoral, the place that needs to be cleansed, the place that is naturally unrighteous, that needs to become righteous before God, dwells within us, not outside of us. And we'll talk about the danger of Reversing that framework. And, and Jesus proves this, right? I mean, he explains with six behaviors and six attitudes how our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? the Bible says? And, of course, the answer, God says, I search the heart. I know the heart. I know the uncleanness. I know the unrighteousness. Defilement doesn't come from the outside to the inside, it comes from the inside to the outside. And cleansing your hands without having your heart washed means nothing before the Lord. If we miss the heart of the matter, we can find ourselves looking like spiritual people, but still living with the heart of wickedness. I think that there's an allure to man-made traditions. I think that we are by nature drawn to creating traditions that we can ritually experience that supplant the gospel. And I want to tell you why. Because because when we're able to create traditions that make the problem on the outside and not the inside, we alleviate ourselves from responsibility, right? And that's exactly what they did. They're like, hey, the problem's not here. The problem's out there. And as long as I separate myself from out there, I won't have a problem in here. And Jesus flips it around and he's like, no, the problem is in here, and your in here problem is defiling everything around you. And until you take personal responsibility of that, things are not going to change. The second thing that I think uh, makes man-made tradition so alluring is it leaves us, it puts us in a place where we can think that we're basically good. You know, more or less, we're, we're good people. We follow these traditions. And as long as we keep ourselves from those things on the outside, because we're basically good, we will be okay. We may need some minor modifications, right? I mean, it's good to come to church, put, put our kids into Christian school, you know, learn a couple things because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to give us good advice. It's not, it's not the good news. It's the good advice, like N.T. Wright said, And, of course, that is to totally and completely misunderstand the gospel. The the coming of Christ was not a declaration that we're basically good. The coming of Christ was a declaration that we are altogether wicked and evil. Like, there's no way. There's no way for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get to God. We are totally in need desperately in need of a savior who can rescue us who can save us who can restore us i think man-made tradition also the third thing is this it keeps us in a position where we can maintain control right if we can reduce god to a set of do's and don'ts we put god essentially in a box right and now we can be in control we can keep god in his place we don't need this radical faith. We don't need to come to God and open up our whole hands and our whole hearts and our whole lives and say, God, okay, you know what? I'm a little scared, and I don't know what this is going to look like, but I know, what, I know what the cross demands of me. And so, God, you've broken the box of my personal traditions, and now I'm coming and I'm giving everything to you. You don't have to do that if you're just going to reduce God to a, a list of do's and don'ts. You can keep God in this safe little place, or so you think. The cross of Christ demands so much more. And the final thing is this. The final thing is obviously pride, right? I mean, when we create these rituals uh, that we are consistently executing, we can have a perception of ourselves that is greater than other people. You know, we can, we can have this attitude. Well, I do I do this. You know, these are the things that I do. This is how I please God. And then we can use, and of course remember, we judge ourselves by our intentions and other people by their actions. We're never as good as we really think we are. Can I get an amen from God's people tonight? We're never as good. We're never as good. And you know the greatest thing that will help you deal with that issue is getting married, right? I mean, if you... You think you're all amazing, right? You think that you got it all together and that you're gonna bring all of this to a marriage and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like the marriage is a mirror and you're like, oh, crap, I'm horrible, I'm horrible. I'm horrible, I thought I could, I thought I could love so selflessly. And you know what, you could when it was 20 minutes with somebody. And you could when you could close the door or hang up the phone, right? I mean, when you could control the relationship, you could turn it on you could turn it on for a minute, but when you're living 24-7 with somebody, it's like you can't escape. And by the way, they can't either, and that's why you need God so bad in your life. Like the only way to a healthy marriage is total dependence upon the Lord. But when, when we're in that place of uh, minimizing, reducing, truncating the gospel to man-made tradition, that's not even a truncation, it's a perversion, then we can live this life of pride. You know, we can live this life of pride. Well, I dress like this. I, d- I wear these clothes. You know, I get this in church sometimes. You know, people, people scanning and seeing what p- other people are wearing and then criticizing them because, you know, what they're wearing might be just like uh, showing a little too much knee or something like that. And don't get me wrong, we should come clothe the church, okay? I am for that. I am for that. <laughs> I am for that, but God help us to not enter the place of worship and be like scanning people up and down to see if they meet our standards. No one cares about your standard, okay? The standard's been set in the standard's been set in the Word of God. All right. Okay, I, I've said enough. I've said enough, and and I just have to do some Q and A. So, but but let me let me pray for us and. Um, Let's wrap this up the right way. Father, thank you so much that, that you're good and, and you're faithful. God, we mess it up. We mess it up. And you know why, God. We just were prideful. We don't want to take responsibility. It's easier to criticize people than to submit to the conviction of your spirit. And we just want a, a fresh start. Maybe tonight you need that fresh start, that fresh work of God's Holy Spirit. And, and he's present tonight. And, and you know what? No one needs to know why. It's really nobody's business. It's just business between you and the Lord. But maybe you need that fresh work. Maybe you need the tilling of the soil of your heart. Maybe you've supplanted the gospel with just rules and regulations that you have straight up made up. And you need to honestly kind of cut it out. And you need to get back to the word and letting heaven influence your life. Uh, maybe maybe today, you know, you find yourself in a place and, and it just is possible, you know, you've been consistently coming to this place and, and there's a, a good regularity, but it's just been religious ritual. And you've not really ever experience the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit in your life. You need to connect that dot tonight through faith in Christ. And so tonight as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, I just want to pray for us this evening. And um, if this is you, I I want to give you an opportunity just just to acknowledge that. I think it's in that place of acknowledgement that God can really get hold of our hearts and pull something out of the secret, undisclosed, covered places in our life and get us out of that and into the light. So tonight, if, if you want that prayer, just raise your hand this evening. Just that renewal, that refreshing, that, that work of God, whatever that looks like for you. God bless you and I see your hands. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's awesome. It's awesome. Thank you. I'm going to just raise my hand with you tonight for that desire for more, more of God. More, not not that he doesn't give more. He always does. But, but I want more receptors, spiritual receptors working in my life. More acceptance. And so tonight, I'm just going to, Pray for us. Father, thank you. Oh God, thank you that you're present tonight and we can learn from this situation 2,000 years ago and, and it's easy for us to criticize these Pharisees and scribes but the truth is, God, sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's us. We have bad attitudes towards others. We, we shirk responsibility and God, we go through emotions and so please we pray. God, we open up our hands and our hearts, our lives to you. Pour yourself into us and God, God, we receive tonight all that you have for every miracle, and God, I pray this evening would be one of those nights where, where we would be able to walk away and say, hey, God did something in my present. He did something in my now. He touched me, and he lifted a burden, and he transformed and changed my life, and he surprised me with his grace. God, we pray tonight that you would, that you would do that and more. God, that you would do that and more. Please, by your Holy Spirit, move in this place. And God, answer prayers that have been lifted up for years. God, restore hearts that have been hardened for months. God, may there be a new work of your Holy Spirit that we experience. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.